Amen. Well, you can be seated and turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. And as you're turning to Jonah chapter 3, remember we're in this series right now called Jonah and the Sovereign Grace of God, because that's the point of the book of Jonah, that we would see the sovereign grace of God. That's what God is displaying in this book, that God is sovereign. He is in control. He's the ruler. He's the owner of all things. He's the judge. He holds the standard of righteousness. And yet he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he directs that grace and mercy, however, and to whomever he sees fit. And we are to match his character and we are to submit to his sovereignty. And so this book really isn't about Jonah, although Jonah would probably want this book to be about him, right? But this book is about God. This book is about God. God displaying who he is. And Jonah just gets to be a part of that story. So let's read Jonah chapter 3. Last week we covered verse, uh, chapters 1 through 2. I'll catch us up and then we'll move into this chapter this morning. Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What a chapter. Now, you could sit in this thing for weeks and not fully uncover the depths of the truths that are here. And so what we're seeing in this particular chapter in this book is that God graciously affects salvation in the Ninevites through Jonah's renewed obedience and through his proclamation of God's message. 
In other words, simply put, God saves the Ninevites through Jonah's preaching. God saves the Ninevites through Jonah's preaching. And so I've entitled this particular message, God's Gracious Salvation. God's Gracious Salvation. Because that's what we're seeing here. Remember, the title of this whole series, the theme of the book, is God's sovereign grace displayed through this story of Jonah, right? The sovereign grace of God. He is sovereign, he is ruler, he is in control, and he directs his grace how he sees fit, and he is gracious, and he saves those who call on him. This, is, this book is about the sovereign grace of God, and really to build up almost kind of brick upon brick to that title, to that overall theme, we saw in week one, the sovereign pursuit of God. God, by his own initiative, pursues sinners to use them, to save them, to call them to be part of his plan. He pursues them. And this week, we see that God not only pursues them, but what? Saves them. This is the sovereign grace of God being displayed, and we're just building each chapter. We see it really displayed in chapters one through two, and then chapters, chapter three, we see it kind of play out, and then in chapter four, we see it explained. We're going to see explicitly in chapter four what it is that we're supposed to see in this book, and that is that God is gracious, and he can do whatever he wants with his grace, even save the worst of sinners. So this is God's sovereign grace. He pursues and he saves. So far, that's what we've seen. And so this is an incredible, incredible picture. This is the progression of the book. And this is what the author aims for us to see. God sends his servant. God sends his message. God regenerates hearts. And God turns his wrath away from sinners. Isn't that incredible? And really, this is what's happened in your life. If you're a Christian, this is exactly what's happened in your life. God, by his own sovereign grace, by his own initiative, has pursued you, your life, called you out of darkness and out of death because he chose to. And as he sent his message to you and opened your eyes and opened your ears and opened your heart, and you responded by repentance and faith, he turned his wrath away from you and gave you right standing with him. This is a wonderful truth that we're going to see in this chapter, but there's also application for us as Christians, because as Christians, we are called to a life of continual repentance, aren't we? We are to walk in Christ as we received him. How did we receive him? Repentance and faith. How do we walk in him? Continual repentance and faith. Belief in his word and turning away from ourselves and following his word. And so this is what God is aiming for us to do in our lives. But there's even something greater being shown to us, and that's God's response to man's repentance. God's response here to man's repentance is that God takes it into account. For the sinner who is unsaved, your judgment is conditional upon your lack of repentance. God will respond by saving you if you turn from your sin and trust in him. That's... That's how God works. That's what he wants to show here. But for you as believers, it's also true. This is also true. Your repentance or lack thereof really determines the future of your life. And if you'll repent of the sin in those areas that you know you're not repenting of, that you're just compromising in just a little bit, I think once again, you'll see a spiritual breakthrough that you haven't seen in your Christian life so far. 
God is gracious and he responds to the repentance of his people. If you repent, if you believe his word, you trust in him, follow him wholeheartedly, you'll see his blessing in your life. I'm not talking about health, wealth, and prosperity, right? I'm talking about spiritual blessing, peace, consistency, stability, wisdom from his word. And if you'll stay in your sin and won't, then you'll see destruction and the results, the punishment and the potential destruction that comes with your sin. We also see here the power of God's word to affect salvation. And we'll also here see just the strength of preaching. Preaching the word of God brings about this repentance in people. So we see this great repentance, God's response to it, the power of the word, the effective ministry and preaching what it does in the lives of people and how God responds to this great ministry here. So as we see this and we uncover it, what are we going to see? We're going to see four points as we go through this. First, we're going to see God's recommissioning of Jonah. And we'll call that the recommissioning. Then we'll see Jonah's, uh, Jonah reveals God's message to the Ninevites, the revelation. Then we'll see how Nineveh repents and believes. That's the repentance. And then how God relents from his wrath, the relenting. Recommissioning, revelation, repentance, and relenting. It's pretty simply laid out. You can see that for yourself, but we have a lot to learn here. So let's start with the recommissioning in verses one through two of chapter three. It says the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it. The message that I tell you, this is God coming to Jonah a second time. That's mercy. That's grace, right? Jonah has had one of the most notorious rebellions in the history of mankind. God's word came to him directly. He is a prophet of the Lord and he runs and his story will be told <laughs> throughout the rest of history. And so this is a great rebellion. And yet God, by his mercy, pursues Jonah, disciplines Jonah saves Jonah from his discipline with a big fish, spits him out on dry land, and is now recommissioning the prophet. Second chance. It's a second chance. And this is the grace of God. And Jonah was confronted by the word of the Lord here. So in this verse, what we see is that by any number of possible means, at this point in history, God is speaking through a number of different means. The Lord brings his word to Jonah. He probably spoke it directly because we see a dialogue between God and Jonah in chapter four. So I'm not sure why this would be any different, but it came to Jonah. Jonah heard it. Now, listen, this is a significant place to be when you hear the word of the Lord. This is a significant place to be. When God's word comes to you, like it is today, like it is in your Bible reading, like it will be if you're listening to some sermons, as the infallible, sufficient, inerrant word of God comes to your ears, you're put in a very unique position. Everybody is. Because when it comes and it is heard, it corners and arrests the one who is hearing it. You have two choices at that point. Respond to God's word in obedience or willfully reject it. There's no other options. So if by God's providence, you hear the word of God, you are put in a very significant position. 
Um, and there's no way out. You either hear it and respond or you reject it. Those are the only two options. And so it would be better off if you didn't hear the word than to hear the word and reject the word. And that's what Jonah did at first. And that's why the Bible, by the way, speaks of varying degrees of eternal punishment. And I don't know if you know that, but those who have had the greatest exposure to God's word in their lifetime, those who have heard God's word growing up or are living near a church, for instance, that is preaching the biblical gospel and God's word, they have a greater responsibility and accountability because they've heard the word plenty of times. And those who have the greatest exposure and reject God's word will experience the greatest degree of punishment. It would have better, for instance, for you not to come today than for you to come hear God's word and reject what it says. And that's just what the Bible points to because you're accountable to it. And my heart really, by the way, is th this makes my heart a little bit fearful for just Mandeville who have this church in particular sitting right here as a lighthouse and beacon of hope and truth with the word of God. And yet many who are not following the Lord. So if you wanna see this increase of accountability, Matthew 10, 14 through 15 says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet. When you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Why? Because the apostles were there preaching the truth and people rejected it. Matthew eleven twenty through 24, then he began to denounce the cities where most of the mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. One will have a more bearable punishment than the other. Why? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Or you see in Matthew 12, 47 through 49, and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Let me read one more. Hebrews 10. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified and has outraged, uh, outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so what we see is there is an accountability with hearing God's word that comes to you, your mind, your heart, your life. If you hear it, you have a, a responsibility to respond to it. And so this makes Jonah's disobedience all the more frightening, doesn't it? He heard God's word and said, mm-mm, sorry, Charlie, I'm going my own way. The word of God was on his doorstep and he left. But here, look at this. God comes to him again. 
God brings his word to him again. There's no way out of this position unless he wants to reject this again. This is God's sovereign grace wrapped up in one verse. Look at it. The word of the Lord, that's sovereignty. Think about this. The word from the true living God. From Yahweh, the, the source, the creator, the owner, the sustainer, the ruler, the judge of all things. This is his word coming forth. He is actually speaking to his prophet. What he says is authoritative and true. And so this is the word of the Lord. That's sovereignty. And it comes to Jonah now a second time. That's grace. Sovereign grace. And so here's what happens. As he has disciplined Jonah, broke him of his selfishness, caused him to repent, sanctified Jonah through his discipline, right? He brings him to a state where all he can do is cry out to God. God clearly sanctifies Jonah in Samaria's through the, through the water. And now God comes a second time and Jonah is carefully careful to obey God's word. And that's what it takes sometimes, doesn't it? It takes God's discipline in our lives. For us, the next time we hear or see what's right in the word of God, and we say, I remember what happened last time when I disobeyed. I'm not doing that again, right? That's what it takes sometimes. And that's exactly what happened in Jonah's life. What a, what a gracious work of God in Jonah's life to save him from himself, discipline him so he obeys the word of God. Verse two, we see the exact same commission. The wording hasn't changed, which is intentional because this really is a second chance. This is the same commission as verse one. Look at this verse, I mean, it's chapter one. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, right? That's exactly what God told them the first time. This is a, a second chance. What a beautiful opportunity. What a gracious God. He has the exact same words minus the reasoning, which was in chapter one, which was that this is, their evil has come up against me. We already know what it is, but here's what he says, arise and go. Remember this? Look at, these are two imperatives, back to back, command, command, meaning here's what you're to do and you're to do it immediately. Arise, go, right? This is an authoritative command from God, not a suggestion. And by the way, that's what God's word is when you read it. It's authoritative. So this is immediacy. He says, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message that I tell you. This very call or proclamation, which I'm going to speak to you. He says to speak exact, exactly my words. Don't deviate from my words. And that's what we are to do if, if we are to proclaim God's word, right? We're not to add to it or take away from it. We're to proclaim exactly what God has said in his word. You are to be unoriginal in your message. And you are to say exactly what God says. That's what the preacher is to do. That's what the minister is to do. That's what you are to do as a Christian as you proclaim the word. Tell the people exactly what I, I say. That's why we preach expositionally, right? Just gonna explain to you what's already here. Not make it up on my own. I don't have anything more clever to say or more effective to say. God is wise, and we're gonna just study what he says. So this is the message. Jonah's not to alter the message. He's been given a message. It's to be delivered to Nineveh. He doesn't change it in his own wisdom. He's not to give them wrong information. He's not to misrepresent God. That will damn the people. 
and will not turn them away from their sins. So he is to go to Nineveh with the word of God and proclaim it. And this is the power, right? Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the what? The word, right? And Romans 10 also says, how are they to know about this truth without someone going to what? Preach it, tell them. So this is the the wonderful reality of what's happening here. He's being sent to preach so those who hear will believe and call on the name of the Lord. And by the way, that's the progression in Romans chapter 10. You're sent, you preach, people hear, they believe, they call on God for salvation. That's how it works. So Jonah's gonna do this now. He's got a second chance. He's not gonna be perfect, nor is, and we're gonna see that in chapter four. You're gonna say, well, Jonah's now, he's, he's ready to rock. He, he's ready to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. Yeah, I'm sure there's still a little bit of reluctance in his heart and he's not fully there because we're gonna see in chapter four that he goes back a little bit to his same old self. So he's not perfect, but he's under the influence of God's power and grace. He's been trained by discipline. And if he rejected this again, by the way, he'd be dangerously close to some serious consequences of the Lord. And uh, like the verses we've read, it's, an, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of, of God. So let me encourage you in that. Remember the work that God has done in your life through the discipline that he's brought. Don't forget. And don't go back to your ways you get dangerously close to destroying your life permanently. Permanently. Don't forget those ways. So here he goes. This is Jonah. He's recommissioned. He's ready to preach the word. He's going to preach exactly what God says. And so this is the recommissioning. This is the recommissioning. It's God's sovereign choice to recommission Jonah, give him grace. Second, we see the revelation. God reveals then his message to the Ninevites through Jonah, through Jonah. Look at verse three. So Jonah arose, went to the city of Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, here's the message, right? What is exactly he's supposed to say? Well, here it is. It's only five words in the Hebrew, eight words in the English. Pretty simple as God Is he adding more to it? Is he explaining it while he's there? Probably, but at the very least, this is what the Holy Spirit wants us to know was the essential part of the message, warning of judgment. What was it? Now 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast. Oh, that's the next point and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let's just look at verses three and four in the Revelation. Verse three starts with Jonah's immediate obedience. It says, so Jonah arose. And this makes sense now, doesn't it? Remember in chapter one, God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh. And it says, so Jonah arose and fled to where? Tarshish. You would expect that Jonah would do exactly what God says. Here, he actually does. It says, God says, arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it, this message. So Jonah arises and goes to where? Nineveh. All right, Jonah, you're getting it. And so he heads to Nineveh, here highlighting the obedience 
of Jonah. He did what God told him to do. That's how things should work in the first place. The afflictions that he's received have sanctified his life, at least a little bit. Why did he go? Verse three tells us to do according to all the word of the Lord. That's what Joshua says, right? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night to be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You're to live according to the word of the Lord. Jonah arose to do exactly what the Lord said, right? To do according to the word of the Lord. He's, he's going because he wants to obey God. Now, I, I'm telling you, I think that there's a little bit of reluctance here still left in Jonah. I don't think he has fully uh, been sanctified of his old self because we see, see it in chapter four a little bit again. And so this speaks to us really, it really doesn't matter what you feel, it matters what God says, right? Jonah might be feeling a little bit of reluctance here, but that doesn't matter. Oftentimes we're led by our feelings and how faithfully we want to obey God. And that really has nothing to do with it. If God says it, we do it. Regardless of how we feel, we just pray that our feelings eventually catch up, right? And so this is what Jonah is doing. And so now we've learned a little bit about the Ninevites and in, in their location, their background, their practices, their great size, right? But here he says again, call out to Nineveh that exceedingly, or he says, now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days journey in breath. We're told a little bit more about, about Nineveh here. Remember Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. I told you last week about what the Ninevites and the Assyrians were like right? They were the most brutal people on the planet at that time, the greatest world power and the most brutal people. Uh, really exceedingly great. They're greater than even Babylon at the time, which in, in essence makes Nineveh the largest and the strongest in the whole world. And their specific attack was against the Israelites. And so we know how the Israelites felt. We know how Jonah felt about them, but keeping with the standard of about 20 miles a day, the, the, the size of this city is made known to us. That's, that was the standard, about 20 miles a day on foot. That's why we know how long it would take Jonah to get from where he was in Jerusalem to Nineveh. But now if we just measure Nineveh, 20 miles a day on foot, um, three days journey, Nineveh is about 60, um, 60 miles. And this is in circumference and archeology span um, confirms that. So I know it says in breath, it might be, it might be a little bit confusing, but Nineveh is 60 miles in circumference. This is a huge city. That might be small to us and our standards nowadays, but uh, that's huge. I mean, there's a lot of people, almost 600,000 people in this one city, and they are brutal. And it's 60 miles in circumference. They have 100-foot walls, 100-foot walls, not an exaggeration. They're 60 feet wide. You could ride about three chariots uh, side by side on top of the wall. And so this is Jonah going to Nineveh and there's a three-day journey to walk around it. And what Jonah does is he goes into this city, verse four, about a day's journey and calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That doesn't mean that Jonah waited a day to start preaching. He goes into Nineveh and he begins immediately, but it only took a day. Now that's significant. It only took a day for something incredible to happen, a day of preaching. Now, before we, we look at that, 
I want you to see, I put this map up again that I showed you last week. I think it's up there. It's hard to see. And, um, and what you see is along the shore of where Jerusalem is, kind of up and down that shore there, you can see that Jonah was probably dropped by the fish at any one of those places. Uh, maybe all the way back down to Jerusalem, but probably not, probably up higher. But if you even go to the straight line from the shore to Nineveh, just that straight line, the shortest journey, probably take about two weeks for you to get from the shore all the way to Nineveh, top right corner where that, uh, where that red line is. If you go to the shortest route there, it's about a two-week journey. And so Jonah here is about two weeks after being spit out by the fish. He's going into Nineveh, this incredibly hostile city, ready to preach. And within one day, something incredible happens. Jonah goes into the city, preaches God's message. And what we see here is as he preaches God's message, he reveals this great judgment. Look at what it says. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the message. That's the revealed word of God. It's a message of judgment. You might say this doesn't sound like God's sovereign grace, but it is. It is God's grace. If you are warned of your impending judgment because of your sin, and you are warned that you will suffer the consequences of your sin if you don't turn from it and trust in the Lord, that is a great grace to your life. Because God's word has come to you and told you how to be saved. It has come to you. If you read the word of God and realize your destructive habits, your destructive behavior, your situation in your relationships, in your life, uh, dealing with your, your job or your family or your parenting, and you realize that your ways are an error and you need to repent of those ways, that's a great grace of God in your life. That he would bring his word to your mind, to your heart, that you could hear it, see it, and obey it and have the blessing of God in your life. This is a great, wonderful work of God. So Jonah's coming to Nineveh, revealing the word of God. And this is highlighting the power of the word. The power of the word. When God's message goes forth, it accomplishes what it is set out to do. And so Jonah's message is one of judgment, but this is a great work of of God through his word. And what happens? After he tells these people, 40 days and 40 nights, and you're gonna be destroyed, they respond. But before we look at that response, let me tell you one thing. As he speaks of 40 days, you might say, why 40 days? Well, first of all, it's a God's gracious gift of giving them time to repent. That's God's gracious gift of giving them time to repent. Hey, listen to this word. I'm gonna give you 40 days to respond in a sense. But really in the scriptures, 40 is associated the number with testing. It's really associated with the idea of testing. Noah, it's, uh, with Noah, it says in Genesis chapter seven, verse four, that it rained, what? 40 days and 40 nights. We know that in Numbers 14, the Jewish spies explored Canaan for 40 days. The Israelites were tested in the wilderness for 40 years, Deuteronomy 2.7. Some said 40 days. That would be awesome for them. 40 years, Deuteronomy 2.7, right? Or the Lord Jesus was tested in the wilderness, fasting 40 days and 40 what? Nights, Matthew chapter four. Nineveh, 
You have 40 days to repent. This is not, listen, this is God's sovereign grace. You know what Sodom and Gomorrah got? No warning. And this place is no better than they were. God is showing his patience and giving them time to repent. This is the point of the whole book, God's sovereign grace. So what we see here is God's gracious salvation. We see the recommissioning of Jonah, the revelation given to Nineveh through the message that Jonah declares. And now we see that Nineveh repents. Let's look at the repentance in verses five through nine. We see the repentance. And the people of Nineveh, verse five, believed God. They believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, issued a proclamation, published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything, but let them not feed, uh, feed or drink, but let the man and beast covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is the greatest revival in history. And I'm not exaggerating. This has never happened before this point in the Bible. And this has never happened since that the preaching of the word of God has caused the entire nation to turn from their sin to God, starting with the king all the way down. Never, never happened before and will never happen again. And so there's a little old book of four chapters right here in the midst of the minor prophets in the Old Testament gives us the greatest revival in history. I mean, this is amazing. They hear God's word, they respond, they repent, and they believe. The king down. Now think about this. This is really an indictment on Israel as well because their kings, all of them in the northern kingdom and all but just a few in the southern kingdom. Jonah's preaching, by the way, in the northern kingdom, Israel. Judah, they had a few good kings along the way, but not many, right? But all of the northern kingdoms where Jonah is coming from as a prophet of Yahweh, all of their kings were bad, all of them. And they continued to lead the people towards rebellion of, towards, uh, of Yahweh and his word. So now here we see the Ninevites repenting. The prophet, the one who's supposed to obey God, runs. While the sailors that we saw in chapter one repent and believe. The Ninevites turn from their wicked ways while Israel, God's people, from the king down are wicked. And this is a picture for us. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I won't turn there now just for time's sake, but you can read it later. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 speaks of how the whole Old Testament is meant to, to be an example for us. While the people of God in 1 Corinthians 10 says, they did such and such, they did this, they went here, and yet God was displeased with them. And it says that is meant to be an example to us. 
that we wouldn't follow in their, in their ways. And so we see that really the Old Testament is showing us an example of people who disobeyed Yahweh and didn't follow his ways and we are to not be like them, right? And that's true of Israel. We are to watch their errors and say, we are not to respond in that way. We are to look at Jonah's life as a prophet who hears God and runs from God because he doesn't have the same heart as God. And we are to look at that life and say, we are not to follow his example, right? That's 1 Corinthians 10, one through 13. That speaks of this. We are to look at these people's lives in the Old Testament and say, we are not to follow this. But isn't it ironic that we are to look here now at the Ninevites who respond to God's word in repentance, experience the grace of God, and we are to say, we should respond like them. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. God is sovereignly saving Gentiles God is doing the work here. 1 Timothy 4.10 makes it clear that God does the work of salvation in anybody who is saved. So this is the work of God, clearly. This is the work of God. The people of Nineveh, look at verse five. They what? They believed. They believed the word of God. That's where it starts. They believed the word of God. Let's look at their repentance for just a second. Here's where it starts, believing God's word, Right? If you don't repent of your sin, you don't believe what God says. So it starts with the belief in God's word. And then they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You say, what's that? Well, sackcloth and then a little bit later, ashes, says that the uh, word reached the king. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered him with himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. They were symbols. They were symbols of the seriousness and the sadness of sin and its results. And so look, you see these elements so far. You see response to the word of God. You see a, a real sorrow and sadness about sin, right? And then what happens? He issues a proclamation, verse seven, publishes it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast nor herd taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, there's a fast now. So it leads to action. It leads to action. He tells everybody to fast, even the animals, right? And let them call out mightily to God. It's focused on God. And I think there's some elements here. You could go back to chapter two, and if you wanted to spend some time, you could see elements of Jonah's repentance. But I think what we see here, the elements of repentance in scripture are oftentimes the same. They start with a conviction of the word of, by the word of God. It leads to a sadness and a seriousness about sin. It leads to action and it's God-focused. That's genuine repentance. Genuine repentance versus worldly sorrow, right? These people are genuinely repenting of their sin. They become examples for us to follow. And so this is what God is doing here. He is saving the Ninevites. They repent and they hope, verse eight, I'm sorry, verse nine, that God would turn from his sin. And before we move on here, let me just encourage you. If there are areas in your life where you need to repent, follow those steps. Jonah has, gives us a good practical example here. Understand what the word says 
be committed to it. Develop a real seriousness, a serious understanding and sadness about your sin and their results. Make sure that this leads to action. There's one thing to say, I'm really sorry for my sin, another thing to actually repent of it. And then lastly, know that your heart is, this is not for my own benefit as much as it is to be faithful to God, right? So we see these steps of repentance here. So the recommissioning of Jonah, the revelation of God's message, the repentance by the Ninevites, and lastly, we see here that God relents from his wrath. Verse 10, God relents from his wrath. This is how this great salvation comes about. The commissioning, the revelation, the repentance and belief, and the relenting of God. This is how this salvation plays out in this chapter. Verse 10, look at it. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and did not, what? Do it. This is a great mercy of God. This is incredible that God did not destroy them as he said he would based on their response to his word, based upon their response to his word. Now, simply, if you look at this and understand God's heart, God wants these people to be saved. God planned for these people to be saved. That's what he was doing through Jonah's message. He established in eternity past that if these people would repent and he would work in them to bring about repentance, that they did repent. So he, to magnify his grace, would relent from destroying them. Now you might say, how does this work? How does the human responsibility and the sovereignty of God work together? And my answer to you is, I don't know, right? But there is human responsibility that when you hear the word of God, your job is to respond to it. Your job is to respond to what it says. And you leave the rest up to God, but God in his great mercy responds to repentance. This highlights his mercy for the worst of sinners. This highlights his sovereign grace. This highlights that God does respond to repentance. And you might say, well, I thought God doesn't change his mind here. He says that he would destroy them in 40 days. He doesn't do it. And there's a real simple answer. This is, this is the Bible describing God with human terms. Did God really repent in himself? Right, because that's the word that's used here. Not only relenting, he repented. God himself repented, right? Did God really repent in that way? Well, that's the best way for us to understand it. That's the best way for this chapter to magnify God's character, that judgment would come as a result of sin. And yet his message doing the work in these people as they turn from their sin and respond to his message causes God to bring about salvation rather than judgment. And we are to understand that. This is how God works. This is how God works. And that's why I say to you, for your particular life as a believer in Christ, what areas are there that you need to repent of? 
Are you wondering maybe why does it seem as if God is far from me? I can't get past some of these areas in my life. Maybe again, the issue is you're unwilling to repent and do what you know the word of God says. And so because of this great repentance, it says that God relented from this disaster and he did not do it. These Ninevites are saved. These Ninevites are saved. It's incredible because even in Matthew chapter 12, you know what Jesus says to the Pharisees? He says the Ninevites are gonna rise up in judgment as a testimony against Israel. Because the Ninevites heard the word of God, responded and were saved. While Jesus came to his own people, specifically the Pharisees, and they heard the word and they didn't believe. The Ninevites are now serving as an example and God is magnifying his grace that he saves the worst of sinners, that he relents from his judgment when people repent, that his word does this great work and that he is gracious and merciful. And so as we close this today, here's how I think we can apply this. First, I think you have to realize this is exactly what's happened to you in your salvation. God has commissioned somebody, somewhere, somehow, to bring the word of God to your ears, right? Maybe you read it on your own and you came to a knowledge of the truth, but we know even from the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, in some ways we can't understand unless somebody explains it to us, right? Someone explained to you the word of God. Then you've received this revelation from God. His truth came to your mind, your ears, about the gospel of Christ, the condition of your sinfulness and what your judgment would be. And your response, if you were in Christ, was repentance and belief. And what happened in that moment is that God relented of his judgment upon your life caused you to be born again, gave you right standing with him and gave you an eternity to, to look forward to. This is the great work of salvation. But as I said, the result for our life is that we would live a life of repentance on a continual basis. That, that we would turn from our sin as we hear the word of God on a regular basis, knowing that the blessing of the Lord awaits for us as we do. And so my encouragement to you today is for you to know that and respond to it by repenting of your sins. If you're in here and you don't know Christ, this could be true of you. If you would respond to God's word, turn from your sin and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with a, a desire to please you, a desire to make you known a desire to experience your grace and your salvation. Lord, we know that your word is the power. We know that your word does the work. We know that you commission your people to go out to reveal your word to even the worst of sinners. And as even the worst of sinners hear your word all the way up until the end of their lives, and respond, you relent 
from your judgment and bring about salvation. This book, as it highlights your sovereign grace, Lord, is showing us over and over and over again your character, how you pursue sinners and how you save sinners. Next week, we'll see why you do it. Lord, this is who you are. Lord, this picture points us to the salvation of the Gentiles, and I'm surely glad that you extended your salvation beyond Israel because we are the results here in this room of your salvation that has gone to the ends of the earth. Lord, I pray by your mercy and grace that we would be people who respond in repentance and who look forward to your blessing that comes along with it. I pray if there's anyone in the room this morning who doesn't know you, that they would hear the revelation that you put forth, that they would understand that they are sinners, that they suffer, they will suffer your judgment. Lord, that they are at this time standing before you guilty under your wrath, your enemy, under your condemnation. And they will be destroyed, whether it be in 40 days or 40 years, they will experience eternal punishment. And yet, Lord, you, by your mercy and by your grace, have sent your son Christ to die as a substitute in our place. That if they would believe your word, turn from their ways, trust in you, they also could be saved. Your judgment would be taken away and your grace would be upon them. I pray, Lord, that they would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.